What's up, everyone? This is episode 130 of the Wax Museum podcast, where I talk about all things basketball cards from past to present to future. This is your host, Kyle. And as always, you guys can find me throughout the week on social media. My Instagram is at Wax Museum Podcast, and my Twitter is at Wax Museum PC. Okay, well, I have a jam-packed episode for you today, and probably not for the reasons you're thinking of. I know we've had a crazy week, so what do I have in store? Well, I'm going to start by giving a quick rundown of the big hobby news from the last week or week and a half. Uh, You're not going to get a bunch of reactions and takes, aside from my reactions and takes to the sheer amount of reactions and takes. That will make more sense in a moment. Uh, After the hobby headlines, I'm going to share some recent mail. I know I had some people reach out to me this week requesting that, you know, I don't move all my mail day segments to YouTube. Fear not. I've got an abundance of mail to talk about, and you're going to hear it right here. And then finally, after trying to avoid hot takes and reaction videos all week, it got me to thinking, what is the hardest, sharpest zag I can make to all the current news that is uh, something that's on brand for my show? So you're getting a final segment about a really obscure item from the Tops Vault. Don't know what the Tops Vault is? Don't worry, I'll tell you. So you'll want to stay tuned for that. Okay, I'm going to run you through some of the events that have rocked the hobby as of late. I, You know, I, I have to do it a little bit. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this stuff. I think there are too many unknowns to really weigh in. And I'm kind of tired of hearing about it right now. However, I recognize its significance in the hobby. And I'll definitely cover the important stuff when more information is known and when some of these things are taking place. Um... But there are people out there right now trying to predict what things will be like five years from now. That is an eternity in hobby years. There's no sense in doing that. Um, But as I've said before, one of my goals is for this show to serve as a hobby time capsule in the future. So at the very least, I can take a few minutes to lay out a small amount of info of what we know so far. So on Tuesday, August 17th, eBay emailed some of their customers to let them know that they were banning PWCC, the reason being, quote, it was determined that individuals associated with the trading card seller PWCC have engaged in shill bidding, which is prohibited on eBay, end quote. Well, PWCC later released a statement that they were shocked at the move, and supposedly eBay never presented them with any evidence. Okay, uh, two days later, August 19th, Darren Ravel tweets out an article titled, MLB set to give exclusive trading card license to Fanatics ending 70-year run for tops. That was a lot of big news in a short amount of time. Uh, now, my first response was, hey, you know, maybe this would push tops to make a run at the basketball license, and I tweeted something to that effect. Well, shortly after, we learned that some of the other leagues might be due for a shakeup as well. I quickly figured out, you know, I I can't keep up with all this stuff and I should just stop tweeting any kind of reaction to news whatsoever. Um, And I'll have more on this in a little bit because we were still learning facts. So then another item we learned in that time frame was that StockX's Josh Luber is supposedly going to be very involved. Um, I know he showed up on the crossover on Friday night after all of this and, and kudos to Josh and Chris and Christina. They tried to get him to talk about it. And he kind of deflected all that chatter and, and instead babbled on about, you know, other stuff for a couple minutes. So a little bit of a tease, but kudos to those guys for trying. And then on Monday the 23rd, Shams, of all people, you know, 
Woj's rival, um, tweeted out, Licensed sports giant Fanatics has reached a deal with the NBA and NBA PA to replace Panini in 2026 for exclusive license to produce basketball cards, giving equity to players the and league in the new trading cards venture. Oh yeah. Um, there's all that news. And then on top of that, Ken Golden announced that he would be picking up items from the PWCC vault to take to the new Golden Vault. And he said all interested persons should email Betsy at PWCC to let her know. I did get a little chuckle out of that. Okay, um, so I'm not as intrigued by all the eBay and PWCC and vault happenings as I am the move to Fanatics. You know, for all I know, they can make decisions I love. They can make decisions I'll hate. They could buy out brands I like. They could buy out brands I hate. I don't know. You know, we don't know. It's just too early to tell. But the thing that bothered me the most in all of this, though, is not the news itself, but the way the hobby as a whole handled it. It was bad enough that, you know, keeping up with news this last week was like trying to get a drink out of a fire hydrant. Um, But nonetheless, we had guys that were racing to react to this thing first while the details were still coming out. And I even, I saw one popular YouTuber released a video that was titled something like Reaction and New Info. No, 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 Reaction and New Info. You've got the order all wrong. And it was these types of exercises that helped initiate a cycle where people consumed knee-jerk reactions, they combined them with some little truth that we already had, and then they regurgitated them on their own platforms and social media pages. I'm not just talking about content creators. Anyone that has social media and posts is an influencer to some extent. So while all of that was going on, at one point in this whole thing, I posted a screenshot of an 8th grade lesson plan from a website called Common Sense Education. I know some people probably thought I was being facetious, uh, but I wasn't. It's good stuff. I want to talk a little bit about that today. Um, The lesson was called, This Just In, How Should We React to Breaking News? And the description for that lesson reads as follows. With mobile phone alerts, social media updates, and 24-7 news cycles, It's hard to escape the daily flood of breaking news. But do kids really understand what they're seeing when stories first break? Help students analyze breaking news with a critical eye for false or incomplete information and discuss the downsides of our always-on news media culture. Okay, so the warm-up activity in this lesson asks students to think about why people want to be the first to report on something And um, they broke the responses down into individuals. Why would an individual want to be first? And then why would a news outlet want to be first? And they presented a chart with some sample responses. I thought they were pretty on. So they said, here are some reasons why individuals might be the ones that want to um, react and and get this news out first. says, well, they can gain more followers, likes, and shares. They can be viewed as important or more knowledgeable. And then there's also the excitement of the moment. They want to be in the know. That's individuals. Now, news outlets then, um, it will give them more viewers and readers. They'll make more money because of higher ratings and more advertisers. They'll be well, uh, well-known or famous. Or there's a reporter wanting to be promoted or gain recognition. Okay, so that was one part of the lesson. And uh, there are several activities in the lesson. I'm not going to run through all of them. That ultimately led to the wrap-up section where the teacher is supposed to ask, 
Why do you think it's important to get the full story before reacting to or sharing breaking news? And um, this was supposed to lead into a conversation about the possible consequences of sharing false or incomplete information. And the sample responses they provided were as follows. There's four of them. Um, It can cause people to make choices based on incorrect or incomplete information, number one. Number two, it confuses people. Number three, it creates unnecessary arguments or divides people over issues. And number four, it blurs the lines of truth and falsehood. Now, all of those things sound pretty familiar after after this last week and a half, right? And, you know, I realize I probably played a small role in it too, even with my brief tweet where I questioned if Topps should now pursue basketball. Um, anyway, a lot of that material was from commonsense.org. I'm sure we have a lot of major news updates headed our way soon. It's okay to react. I'm not anti-reaction. It's okay to predict. I'm not anti-prediction. Um, I just want to plead with people to please be cautious and realize that sometimes what we think is an innocent or a fun activity Um, or even if we have good intentions, um, sometimes that stuff can get in the way of the real truth later on. And this is something we've encountered many times before in the hobby. Uh, It won't be the last time we encounter it, but please don't be part of that problem. Okay. Teacher hat off. Um, Well, not really. Maybe not as pronounced. But it's time to move on to the mail. And as you'll see in a little bit, there was a, a fair amount of shiny and sparkly stuff over the last week or two that I got in, but you know I appreciate a good jumbo patch. And that's exactly what I have to offer up for my first piece of mail. It is a 2010-2011 absolute memorabilia jumbo spectrum patch of Bob Lanier. Okay, old timer, right? And uh, Panini had a period of three or four years where between absolute and immaculate and flawless, they had a really impressive run of jumbo patches from rookies, veterans, and retired players. This was toward the start of that era. And um, this particular patch card looks like it's from a waistband of some sort, from either shorts or warm-up pants, or it's from the neck area or the arms. I guess you'd call that maybe the cuffs. Um, In a perfect world, I'd love a big piece of the team name or jersey number, but this is the biggest Lanier patch I've ever seen, and I'm very happy to have landed it. Um, now, Bob has had patches in a number of other products, uh, going back as far as Tops, actually. Tops had some cool pieces of him back in Triple Threads. Uh, Panini's had some nice patch autos as well, but I haven't seen anything else that's this big. So, very happy to own it. Before I move on to the next card, though, I've got to tell you about something pretty wild. After I got this thing in the mail, it motivated me to go to YouTube and look for footage from Lanier's career. One video popped up that I'd never seen before which is surprising seeing as Rick Barry played a prominent role in it. And I went on a pretty big Rick Barry kick in the last year. But it's called Bob Lanier Fights a Fan During Chaotic Pistons-Warriors Playoff Brawl. I guess that's kind of fitting after last week's episode. The video is a little over nine minutes long, but it is worth every second. There's a fight on the court. A Warriors fan punches ML Carr in the face. Uh, Bob Lanier attacks that fan. That drama continues for a while. The NBA was using replacement referees at this point. Those replacement referees are trying to sort things out amongst themselves. Well, TV camera happens to be right there, picks up most of the conversation, 
Rick Barry and Bob Lanier chime in. They get in the conversation. You can hear most of it. And when all was said and done, I think the result was two personal fouls, nothing more, no text, no ejections, other than the fan. Um, pretty wild. That's the late 70s for you, so you have to check that one out. I know I gave you the recap already, but um, you won't be disappointed. It's something that you have to watch. Okay, speaking of YouTube, the next two cards I showed off in a YouTube video earlier this week where I compared red PMGs from different eras. Um, everyone likes a good PMG video, right? Well, um, so this week I got a 2008-2009 red PMG of Roy Hibbert and a 2008-2009 red PMG of Brandon Rush. These both came from the same seller, listed a bunch of cards um, from the set in the past week. I've seen some of the other ones show up on Instagram, so I'm, I'm happy that a lot of people were able to get some PC cards because of that guy, uh, myself included. Uh, I figure I've talked about PMGs at some point in the show's library, but just in case, I want to give a quick rundown of the history of the red PMG. So, in 1995, Marvel, you know, Spider-Man, Doc Ock, Hulk, Thor, that Marvel, owned Fleer, and they bought Skybox. Skybox at the time was a separate company. They merged the two companies and formed Fleer Skybox International. If you've listened to some of the interviews with Gene from Arena Design, you'll know that with Skybox, they were allowed to do some more off-the-wall, unique stuff, whereas Fleer was more of the traditional-looking stuff. So in 1997, they had a metal set where they introduced a parallel called Precious Metal Gems. And um, the first 10 were green, and then the last 90 were red. And that's not a common way to number parallels. Today, they would typically get separate numbering. So these have become very popular over the years for a number of reasons. Well, around the summer of 2005, Fleer essentially went bankrupt, and Upper Deck bought their intellectual property, which was their designs, their branding, all that kind of stuff. And even though Upper Deck introduced Fleer and Fleer Ultra back into the market fairly quick, to the best of my knowledge, they never incorporated the Skybox branding until they introduced a Skybox set in 2008. And as part of that 2008 set, they had a Metal Universe parallel that also had a Precious Metals Red and a Green. And similar to the 97 set, the first 10 were green and the rest were red. Now the big difference at least with numbering goes, is that they were numbered to 50 instead of 100. So there were actually only 40 reds. Um, okay, so real quick, before I talk more about the 2008 set, let me just run through the rest of the PMG reds real quick, at least for basketball. Upper Deck brought PMGs back in, in 2011 and 2013 for their UD retro sets. The reds were out of 150. They had a blue version out of 50. They had greens numbered to 10, although they all... Um, had their own serial numbered print run. I'm not a huge fan of these in general because they're college uniform and they just don't seem to pop like the originals in 97. Well, truth be told, neither did the 2008 version. And if you compare them to the 97s, as I did on my YouTube this week, you'll see I've got my Dale Davis on there. They're pretty underwhelming. And one of the few things that the 97 and the 2008 iterations have in common other than the Skybox branding, is that they're very condition-sensitive, although in a different way. The 97s experience a lot of chipping on the edges, so it's not uncommon to see them grade like a 6 or a 7. The 2008, well, they had this top layer that just like 
I don't know, peeled off. Um, I guess I need to clarify when I say that. It's not like a top's finest peel where you've got a great choice in front of you. They literally just flaked off like a bad sunburn. Um, and I get pictures of those a lot of people saying, is, is this supposed to happen? Well, no, it wasn't supposed to happen, but is it common? Yes. So in a way, yes, it is now supposed to happen or it's common, right? Or usual for it to happen. And whenever I take mine out of the top loader and penny sleeves, they leave behind this trail of crud. And it's kind of fascinating in a train wreck kind of way. Anyway, um, kudos to Upper Deck for trying this. I like owning them because I like hobby uh, continuity, right? It's nice to have them in 97 and again in 2008. I think they're a good way to help narrate the Fleer takeover in the 2000s. And they're a part of hobby history. Um, I don't own any of the retro versions at this point, although as I was writing this up, I did go to Com C, and I, I've got my eye on some. I'm not sure who I'd grab, though. I almost bought an Isaiah Thomas at one point. I think he's the only Hoosier in the set. Uh, maybe I'll grab. There's a Rick Barry there. I might grab that one. But don't be surprised if you hear about one in a Mail Day segment in the near future. I know I bashed them earlier today, but I think I've got to complete the historical run now. It's the same reason I bought Rocky V on DVD at one point. In the meantime, I'll try to post these 2008 copies up on social media, so be on the watch for that. Okay, the next card is a 2012-2013 Select Gold Prism of Danny Granger. This is a card I wasn't expecting to buy, but I got a message on my Instagram this week from a collector named Steve, which that's fitting. I think I have seven or eight collector friends named Steve now, so it's always a good guess if you're not sure, but... Uh, Steve told me that he had been watching my YouTube for a while now, and he found this card and wanted to know if I would be interested in buying it. Well, first off, that's the first time I think someone's reached out to me as a result of my YouTube channel instead of the podcast itself, so that was encouraging because I have worked very hard this summer on trying to grow that channel. That was one of my personal goals. Um, so anyway, Steve threw out an initial price and I countered. We landed somewhere in between. Um, didn't take us too long. And, and um, you know, I think if this whole thing had transpired a year ago, I would have told him I wasn't interested. I like gold cards, but I usually don't go for select gold cards, even though some of the early years look incredible. Um, but for me, it's, you know, if I started, it would just be another chase. Um, I know I just said the early years look incredible, like 2013, 2014, those look awesome. The, the major exception to that is 2012, the one that I got, right? It's funny that I'm saying that. Uh, but for whatever reason, they only put gold on the side borders, and the cards themselves look pretty similar to the silvers, which can be had for a fraction of the cost. Um, I still think everything I just said about the appearance is true, but I suppose I've changed my view on the 2012s for two main reasons. Number one, nostalgia. I ripped a mini box of Select the first year it came out, and I remember the shop owner telling me that it'd be a big deal. I have some good memories of those times, so... It's a nostalgia thing. And then number two, I don't think I'm going to be able to afford um, or even find the Danny Granger Prism Gold from 2012. So the select is going to have to do. So all in all, I'm glad Steve reached out. And it's not often that a rare card hits my inbox before it hits the marketplace. It's in great shape and I'm really happy to own it. Um, now you'd think this was the best Pacers Gold that I got in the last two weeks, but there was one that trumped it. And that will be my final card of today's Mail Day segment. 
It's a 2003-2004 Topps Chrome Gold Refractor of Reggie Miller. And I thought this completed my 0304 set, but it turns out I still need Jermaine O'Neal. Um, there is one on eBay right now for $90. I'm not paying that. So anyway, I'm not, I'm not a complete set, but Reggie is the toughest in the set. And his card's been climbing in price for a while now. It was one of those cards that I never bought in past years because, number one, I was too busy chasing patches, and number two, I just felt like it would always be available, and it would always be there. Well, what a difference a couple years make. So I finally came to the conclusion that they aren't going down anytime soon, and Reggie's still cheaper than a lot of the stars from that era. This one ended lower than I expected, and I think part of the reason was the way that the seller described the card in the listing. He said this, and and it was in all caps, by the way. Not every single card is penny-sleeved, and I do not have time to do that. I assure you higher-priced cards are sleeved, and all cards are packaged with care. I tried my best to check condition of cards, but it's impossible for me to check over 400,000 cards. I will not list a card as mint, but very good to cover this. I'm not a professional grader. I did not check every single card for every single flaw. Very good cards could have flaws. Whew. This guy needs to do write-ups for Panini Relics. Um, Because at the start, you know, he kind of built up the confidence saying that, you know, all all nicer cards are going to be sleeved and packaged with care. But then at the end, he's just like, hey, these cards will have some flaws. So anyway, um, it showed up in the mail and the surface looked near flawless to me. So, you know, I was expecting worse. I'm very happy. It was going to go in a binder anyway because I don't grade that kind of PC stuff, but it's always a good feeling when you open a refractor mail day and the card is actually clean. I think I posted that one on my Pacers account, which is at deadshots underscore cards. Don't be surprised if it makes its way to the Wax Museum account at some point in the near future too. I need more Reggie Miller on there, I think. He just had a birthday this week. I need more Reggie Miller on there. All right. Before I move into today's final segment, I want to take a moment to remind you how you can support this show. As you guys know, there are costs that go into producing a podcast. One of my goals is to always keep the show itself free. As a result, I've signed up for affiliate programs with eBay and Fanatics. Right, You might be buying from there in the near future. So if you'd like to help support this show in this way, go to www.waxmuseumpodcast.com. Click whatever store you need to go to Shop as planned, and the the show gets a small commission in the process. Once again, that's www.waxmuseumpodcast.com. Hustle, grind, spam, profit. We're the Rip Gods. You're listening to the Wax Museum Podcast. Okay, so this final segment is the result of yet another piece I got in the mail this week. And it was an item that at one point was presumably sold by the Topps Vault. If you've been following some of the hobby news from the past week, you've heard a lot about a couple of vaults, but probably not this one. Before I talk too much about this item, I want to give a little history of the Topps Vault. As you all know, Topps has been around for a long time. And over the years, all of the pieces that have been used in the production process started to add up. So in 1989, they got rid of some of this stuff through one of the bigger auction houses, um, but it was still a small amount relative to what they had saved up. Well, as the internet became more and more popular in subsequent years, Topps recognized another opportunity to unload more of this stuff, thus the Topps Vault was born. 
And here's a small piece of a press release from June of 2001. It says, This coming July 6th, the Topps company, in conjunction with eBay, will, la- will launch the Topps Vault, an internet initiative which from time to time will offer the general public some of the most sought-after items in the collectibles industry. The Topps Vault will include original and one-of-one items such as paintings, photography, including original negatives, artist proofs, uncut sports card sheets from the 50s, 60s, and 70s, and much, much more. Well, since that time, I think I've read that over 200,000 items have been sold from Topps' past. And uh, Sports Collectors Digest put out a pretty informative piece in 2018 that gave more information about the vault. I recommend checking that out if you have the time. Once again, that's Sports Collectors Digest. Um, I know they've also tried that Topps, I should say, has also tried to move some of their vault sales to the top store, uh, but there is still an active vault account on eBay as well. I haven't seen much stuff show up there lately, but they were dumping some old basketball stuff when I was chasing my Sign 72 set, so it wasn't that long ago. But um, there are plenty of sellers that own these items and are moving them on the secondary market, which is how I got the piece that I'm talking about today. And a lot of the pieces aren't incredibly valuable, but they're interesting. And that's the stuff that really sticks out to me. So anyway, what did I get? Well, I'll give you the title first, even though that might not be what I actually got. The auction was titled 1970-71 Topps Basketball Charles Hintz Proof Card 101 Topps Vault COA. And then the subtitle read, Never Released Charles Hintz Card. However, before I even got the card in hand or the item in hand, I had a suspicion that some of that information wasn't correct. One thing I've learned in the past is you can't always trust auction titles. Um, To begin with, it didn't look like a proof card to me. It looked more like a photo negative. And I learned that technically, even though a lot of people call them negatives, they're actually transparencies. That's one thing I learned in my research this week. And what tops would typically do with these um, was that they would adhere them to blank card size pieces and then seal them in magnetic holders and that was the case with this one the second thing i was curious about before i got this was the player and truth be told i didn't care who the player was at first he was holding an aba ball and it was a photo for an unreleased card i didn't have anything like that in my collection and i wanted it it cost me something like 18 dollars shipped it was a no-brainer so once the purchase was made i figured well If I'm going to own this negative, or transparency, I guess I should say, of Charles Hintz, I should learn more about the guy. And a quick Google search ultimately led to more questions instead of answering the ones I'd set out with at the start. You see, Charles Hintz was a 6'5 power forward that played 57 total games for the ABA's Pittsburgh Condors. He wore 21, the number 21, and he was black. And the main reason I mention that last important detail is because the man depicted on my new vault item, who also sported number 21 for the Condors, in this picture at least, he was um, white. Clearly not the same guy. So that called for a full-on investigation, of course, which only added to the entertainment value of the card. The Condors were only around for two seasons, so I pulled up both team photos and studied every white guy that I could on the roster. The only two I found that wore 21 were Walt Zerbiak, who, by the way, is Wally Zerbiak's dad, 
and Craig Raymond. I knew a little more about Craig because he spent some time with the Pacers and I'd sent to him in the mail before. Neither one of those guys really looked like the guy in the picture, though. And so I was stumped. And this forced me to send out an SOS to the one guy who might be able to help bail me out of this identification predicament. Basketball historian and collector Tim Gallagher, who's been on this show a couple times before. He got back to me pretty quick and said, Definitely not Walt or Craig Raymond. Could be a guy in camp that was photographed for a card that didn't make the team. And this was both illuminating and discouraging in the sense that it was a great idea and he was probably right. You know, it was probably a training camp guy, but the odds of figuring that guy out, though, were slim to none. So I replied, in that case, I'll probably never figure it out. Well, Tim responded a little later with his first guess. He said, I was thinking it could be Barry Nelson, who played at Duquesne and then for the Bucks around that time. And he attached a picture, and it seemed like it could be. But before I could find much more on on Nelson, he sent me a picture of another player named Ken Spain, and he said emphatically, this is your man. His name popped through my mental Rolodex. He played with Big E at Houston and was on the 68 Olympic team. All right, I got to stop for a moment. I've sang Tim's praises on here before. Um, Like I said several times, he's forever, I'm forever in his debt, I should say. Uh, because of a Willie Sojourner card. Uh, but this, what he just did here was on an entirely different level. This was a picture for a basketball card never created. The guy played 11 total pro games for the ABA, which was a young league. A lot of people considered it to be a secondary league. And he wore a number that was different than the card depicted. Tim was able to do something here that Google seemingly could not do. Although, you know, Google's only as powerful or as the uh, person steering it, I suppose. But um, this is why people with experience, be it watching basketball, playing basketball, collecting basketball, whatever, people with experience in this hobby are a valuable treasure. We can't take them for granted. So once again, thank you, Tim. Okay, so the whole goal was to learn more about this player, who I now know is Ken Spain. And this is where I can put that information back into Google and use that in conjunction with the treasured human knowledge. Who was Ken Spain? Who was this random guy on this random basketball transparency from the Topps vault? Well, for someone that only played in 11 pro games, he had a pretty interesting, albeit brief, basketball career. Here's what I learned. As Tim told me, he played at the University of Houston with Elvin Hayes. What I didn't realize was that that Houston team started the 67-68 season 31-0. And that included a win over a UCLA squad that featured Kareem, uh, well, he was Lou Alcindor at the time, and Lucius Allen. And Spain averaged 14.2 points per game that season, and 14.8 the season after that. And then after that, he played for the U.S. men's basketball team at the 68 Olympics in Mexico City, before being drafted by the Bulls in the NBA and the Oakland Oaks in the ABA. But he didn't play for either one of those teams, though, because he was drafted by the Lions. That's right, the Detroit Lions in the 1969 NFL Draft. I found that on findagrave.com. It wasn't even mentioned on his Wikipedia, so I might have to go in and add that in uh, myself later on. But um, for whatever reason, football didn't work out. And he ended up with the Pittsburgh Condors of the ABA 
posing outdoors in pictures for tops for cards that were never created as depicted on this transparency. And eventually, this transparency made it to the secondary market thanks to the emergence of eBay and the creation of the Topps Vault. And after a few stops along the way, it's in my collection and that brings us to where we are now. So after all of this, I, I really wanted to reach out to Mr. Spain, but sadly he died in 1990 after a battle with cancer. And I know he was married because his widow sold his gold medal and some of his other stuff via Heritage in 2011. Um, who knows? Maybe if she's still alive, I'll be able to reach out to her someday and maybe I can find out some more about Ken. All right. Well, there you have it. Everyone's talking about different vaults this week. I figured I'd add one more to the list. This one, um, you know, a little bit different. Probably not what you expected, but I hope you enjoyed it nonetheless. Between that and the Mail Day segment, I hope this was a nice escape from all the major news that we've been overloaded with in the past week. I know news in itself isn't bad, but I figure it's nice to get a little break. Maybe there was something I said today that resonated with you. If so, feel free to reach out to me on social media. You can find me on Instagram under the handle at Wax Museum Podcast. You can find me on Twitter under at Wax Museum PC. If you enjoyed today's episode, I encourage you to support the show by doing all of your eBay purchasing through the link on my site, which is www.waxmuseumpodcast.com. There's a big eBay logo at the top. Click that and it should give me a small percentage of whatever you purchase in the 24 hours that follow. Once again, that's www.waxmuseumpodcast.com. In the meantime, if you like the content I'm providing, please subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcast. Hit up the Podbean site for a link to the merch store. Tag Taco Bell and let them know they can pay me in burritos. And until next time, this is the Wax Museum Podcast. Podcast.